to the mini break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 5th. What a weekend of tennis it was. Before I bring in my guest, I was just telling him uh, as we were preparing to start this podcast. Last night, I came home around 12 p.m. midnight Eastern time, uh, and obviously, you come home, it's late at night, you're going to bed. Me being the tennis nerd that I am, I go to check my scores, see if there are any matches, and what am I treated to? Not only do I get to see Hyun Chung serve out his return challenger title back from injury, I get to watch Taylor Fritz in his third final, in his third straight non-Grand Slam tennis tournament in a first set tiebreaker with Diego Schwartzman, and then, of course, to top it all off, I get to see the final set of what was a thrilling world team tennis finals. So obviously we have a ton of tennis to recap today. Joining me to do all of that, it has been far too long since the two of us got together in the booth. I feel like he, once he went off to Wimbledon to do his tennis coverage thing, we lost him there. He's, you know, obviously Denison Metten's tennis superstar, mega contributor to our Crack Rackets website. And I'm going to say it, the ultimate dark horse to get the USC men's tennis coaching job james foster mcdonald welcome back to the mini break pod oh i'm not a dark horse i am the clear front runner uh <laughs> now it's good to be back it has been a while since it's just been the uh, the dynamic duo of you and me up here so it's good it's good it- I'm taking a direct shot at Max Rothman. It's because he doesn't do these podcasts anymore, so you and I are always on hosting duties. Mm, you're not wrong. No, I've been, <laughs> yeah, I've been still on that mini-break grind for, what is it, Wednesdays, so it's it's all good. It's been good. Yeah, and look, the Wednesday episode with you and Stokowiak, one of my favorites to listen to throughout the week, probably because it's not my own voice, so I always... No, you love through. your own voice. Don't <laughs> give me that. Come on now. We could do a full 45 minutes on how much I love my own voice, but probably in the true. spirit of you being here Wednesday podcast, We'll try and keep it short. There's a ton of tennis, obviously, uh, to talk about. But before we do that, my first question to you, because we've talked about this at different stages during the year. I'll come out and say this is my favorite part of the year, the summer hardcourt grind. I'm obviously selfish because as an American, when I have tennis at the City Open starting 8 a.m. in the morning and then at Los Cabos at night for me, I get ATP tennis and San Jose for the WTA all throughout the day. So I become spoiled. Uh, for you, is this your favorite part of the year? I mean, it's got to be up there. Stokowiak and I were talking about this just in terms of being just a viewer of the sport. I mean, it's so awesome. You know, like you said, we're spoiled to have all these tournaments that are around us and, you know, not in a time zone many, many hours away. And so it's nice, right? Like you wake up in the morning, got stuff going on during the day, and it's at night. You know, you have some great night matches. One thing we were also talking about is how. I don't know how well City Open, the management, scheduled those night matches. Man, those were a ton of fun. Um, granted, the draws worked out well, and it was great entertaining tennis. But, um, yeah, it's it's phenomenal to pretty much at our beck and call have great tennis available whenever during any hour of the day. It's, it's a ton of fun. So for that reason, yeah. Especially because, and you know this about me, as a next-gen fan, you know, last weekend in Atlanta, I had a Dimenauer Fritz final, but a Fritz Nori Opelka Dimenauer semi, so a ton of young guys there. Exactly. City Open this weekend, and maybe this will be how we transition into our first tournament. I mean, to be blessed, not only with that Kyrgios Medvedev final, which of course we'll talk about, but the match we have to start with, the match of the weekend in, I would say, the majority of tennis Twitter, the tennis universe's opinion, uh, Nick Kyrgios knocks out fellow next-gen superstar Stefano Tsitsipas, 6-4, 3-6, 7-6, and this is very hot takey, uh, but 
in terms of, if, if I guess if you get more specific next-gen matchups in terms of later in the stage uh, of a tournament in 2019, this may have been the single most exciting match I've watched in 2019. It was very exciting. I mean, start to finish. I mean, I think there were some weird points where as a, as a viewer, you kind of don't know what to feel, whether it's, you know, curious, um, getting all upset, or Tsitsipas having to change his shoe like 10 times because of <laughs> all the shoelace incident. You know, there, there's all sorts of different sort of abnormal things happening, right? And so maybe, you know, some people say it adds to it. Some people say it detracts from it. It's, it is what it is. But, you know, nonetheless, I think everyone can agree that it was a very entertaining match. And, man, especially in those big moments, was it a high-level tennis? It was it was a really, really fun match to watch from start would, to finish for me. Would you have laughed if, for a competitive advantage, Kyrgios gives Pass a set of Nike shoes? And he's just like, here, wear these Nikes. Like, that's all you got. Yeah, it's that just, or yeah, nothing. He, he, he hands him the, uh, the shoes that he always wears on the court no matter what. He's like, here, you know what? you can take these yeah no it's like funny a, though the he fed was, like air nikes yeah. or whatever yeah i'm sure you know what i'm sure he's got a spare pair of something in the bag too uh, but no he showed up and he went to sitsy pasta's box to retrieve the shoe and give it back to him uh, it was it was a good time and you know these guys are buddies too right they just play doubles together and so it's there, there was that dynamic at play as well um, but yeah, it was incredibly entertaining. And like I said before, when, especially when, when it came down to it, just really high level tennis, you know, think what you will about Nick Kyrgios, but the guy's a shot maker. Um, and he came away with it. So. And I do want to talk about the tennis itself, but just to round off my point in terms of these next gen matchups, you talked about the atmosphere between these two and why it was so fun because it was friendly, but it was still incredibly competitive. It was yeah. the same thing last weekend in Atlanta. All of these young next gen guys do seem to be fond of one another. They seem yeah. to be sympathetic to the push. They're all trying to make up the rankings, but to why this is my favorite portion of the season, we are finally seeing all of these next gen players start their ascendance. Obviously, being later in the year, some of the older guys, all of the wear and tear they have on their bodies, the top sure. three guys, they're never going to play the you know 250s or the 500 level events anymore because why would they? Um, but these guys are taking advantage of these opportunities. And in particular with Nick Kyrgios, let's talk about that win over Stefano Tsitsipas. Kyrgios, a 6-4, 3-6, winner. Coming out of the gates, because, you know, we joked about this. I think it was at the French Open where we were joking, you know, you would like to be the coach who'd be like, so, Nick, you know, are you trying today? Like, what's the deal? What am I going to get from you? I just want to know so that I'm prepared. And right off the bat, I mean, you could see, I, I I don't think he broke Stefanos right away in the first set. I think he broke him to start the second set. But Kyrgios was locked in. He was making returns early. He was playing aggressive tennis, realizing if he let Stefanos jerk him around the court, he, Stefanos would do just that. But even beyond that, when Stefanos was able to be the aggressor, step into his forehand, Kyrgios played survivor tennis. He was chipping out of corners with depth, using his hands to his advantage. You're right. It's that all-around display that Nick Kyrgios, so much with the -the off-the-court stuff, uh, so often consumes when we talk about him. But on the court, you just always have to remember, this guy can do so many things better than 99.9% of tennis players, not only in the world, but on tour. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, one thing that I think is so interesting, especially in a matchup like this, you saw it, you know, Curios, yeah, he's going to have the huge slaps, you know, he's going to have the wild things. We, we know those are coming at, at one point or another in the match, but he does a really good job of really just, you know, crafting a point how he wants it to look. You know, exactly. he has such, he has just crazy 
polarized strokes. I mean, the backhand to his forehand, it's, it's just night and day. And so he uses that to his advantage. He throws off his opponents. He'll sort of lull them into something that's like, it's a very neutral point. And then he has all the confidence and the power in the world to take, you know, a neutral point to an incredibly so, aggressive point off his forehand. You know? sorry, so, sorry to cut yeah. you off, but on that point, because I agree, I love the way you framed it there. His forehand, so, you know, heavy. It's such a live ball. There's so much action. You don't know if he's going to go angle. You don't know if he's going to hit a jumping slap winner, which we saw, you know, six or seven of this weekend to make it feel legitimate. But then on the backhand side, it's that, you know, it's out in front, consistent drive flatter shot but he's gonna get depth on it that he's able to throw so many different looks at you midpoint I agree that's probably his biggest strength yeah no and and it definitely throws people off you know you're you're not gonna get a just basic you know here we go you're gonna get in the same ball over and over no you're getting different looks on every single thing and you know he'll throw in slice he'll throw in drop shot because he's got the phenomenal feel and you know he uses it to his advantage he's smarter than a lot of people give him credit for yeah he maybe goes for dumb shots yeah he has some things that you know people say "Ah, is that really the right ball at the right time but he'll put you in these just neutral spots and you know maybe people get a little lazy i don't know if it's lazy or just sort of complacent with how the point's going and then boom he's going to take over and and sort of impose his will especially with the big forehand so he played him really smart um and came out on top here i mean razor thin margins of course but you know i, I honestly liked what i saw from curios and you know in terms of effort and everything it, it was good to see see this is why i love working with you you mentioned razor thin margins that's the most impressive takeaway from this match. Let's look at the numbers. Kyrgios, 19 aces. Stefanos, 14. Kyrgios, 3 double faults. Stefanos, 1. But here's where it gets fun. First serve percentage, 58 of 91, 64% first serves in. That's both players' stat. First serve points, 1, 48 of 58, 83% win percentage. That's both players' stats. Second serve points, 1, 16 of 33, 48% uh, win percentage. That's both players' stats. Total points. Points one, 91 of 182. That's both players' stats. This was a 50-50 as even as they come match. Yeah. And what it came down to, Kyrgios was not afraid of the big moment. And we've talked about this with all of these next-gen guys being the aggressor in those moments. For Zirev, his biggest problem is in those biggest, most critical stages, he's 30 feet behind the baseline. That's not Nick Kyrgios. He's jumping and hitting forehand winners. He's hitting drop shots. He's coming to the net using that incredibly blessed first serve of his to serve and volley behind it. And in the big, you know, he faces eight break points. He saves six of them versus Stefanos only faces three break points. He saves one of them. So he's converting his break point chances. I mean, Nick Kyrgios... I hate to say it, and this is a you know a corny rhyme, but it's big Nick. Like he came to play on the biggest moments. Yeah, he did. No, he absolutely showed up, and for all the showmanship and things that distract. I mean, like we said, once he gets on the court, and you know, once his head's in the right spot, man, he's pretty much the most dangerous man out there. Um, and so it was really fun to see this, not only for this match because he did get through it. I did honestly think that there's. I was very worried. I did want him to win, but I thought he was going to blow it as, after I saw that lead slip away from him in the uh, in the third set tiebreak. I was like, oh, God, don't do it, man. But he came through, and then, you know, today he showed up against Medvedev, and, um, you know, he got it done. So props to him, really. 
One of the best parts going into this weekend was, again, how many next-gen players were still available. We had Kyle Edmund alive, uh, obviously Daniil Medvedev alive, Kyrgios, Tsitsipas, uh, just so many, again, young guys getting their chances, looking to make that sort of jump. Uh, Marin Cilic was another guy alive, uh, Benoit Pair. so this was just a high-quality weekend of tennis all the way around. But yeah, you, you talk about that final and getting into that match, because as great was as Kyrgios was, when he matched up with Daniil Medvedev, it's a whole different monster. Daniil Medvedev, 6'6", but very rangy. Another guy who will be six feet behind the baseline, but because he's so big, he can leverage his length to getting to that extra ball, and because he's able to generate so much power, just the angles he can find from those positions on the court, simply amazing. And then you, you forget... Being 6'6", Daniil Medvedev, not too shabby of a serve either. You know, you look at his percentages here. Uh, he makes 62% of his first serves, wins 88% of those points, 65% of his second serve points. Neither player in this match had a break point opportunity. I mean, they're playing big man tennis now. This is, there. I, I know, you know, it's two young guys, but this is, and it's the ATP Tour, it's adult tennis. There's no breaks of serve here. These guys understand the importance of making first serves, converting that serve plus one tennis when you're playing guys as physically gifted as, you know, the Stefano Tsitsipas's, Daniel Medvedev, and Kyrgios's of the world. And it was just that the quality of tennis met the occasion. That was what was so exciting for me. No, this isn't a Masters or a Grand Slam semifinal final, but this is the quality of tennis one fan, a fan can hope and expect to see in that sort of stage. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, yeah, it's ATP 500, so yeah, you don't always have the biggest names, but how great is it to see some of these next-gen guys, you know, like Tsitsipas and Medvedev have a one and a three, respectively, next to their names when you're yeah. looking at the draw. You know, that that's awesome to see. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. The level of tennis was great here. Um, you know, Curious was fighting off a couple things. I think people were talking about back spasms. He had somebody come out and... Um, of course, his arm, if you were watching, all sorts of taped up, too. So he's going through those things. And, you know, once again, just credit to him for being able to come out on top. And, I mean, his serve is ridiculous. So I'm not surprised about the break point aspect. It's just insane when he gets those first serves in. It's just – it's just a monster of its own. But, and I, feel, I yeah. feel like we've talked enough about Kyrgios, but I want to quickly talk about Medvedev perspective. Uh, as you mentioned, he's the number three seed, one of the most consistent players on tour, and I'll plug it here. He was my number three guy in the Great Shot podcast, top 10 next-gen ATP seasons of 2019. Just the consistency he showed, I thought, through the first two, two and a half months on the hard court season, uh, he was probably a top five player on tour. And I think that form, now that we're back on the hard courts, we're going to continue to see that from him simply because he's such a tough out physically. It's just so difficult to keep up with him you know, for over the course of three sets. And that's really what's going to take to beat him because he's going to survive, uh, just do whatever it takes to stay alive. And you look at his run in this tournament, knocks out Fratangelo in straight sets, knocks out Tiafo in straight sets, knocks out Marin Cilic in straight sets. Obviously, he's the benefit of the Peter Gojewicz semifinal, but knocks him out in straight sets. I already mentioned the stats, so we'll end the City Open talk here, and I'm going to frame it as a question for you. Uh, and I, I believe it was... I saw this somewhere on tennis Twitter. I don't remember who brought it up. Maybe Ricky Diamond or Jared Pine, one of those guys. But the idea of, let's say you take out Federer, you take out Djokovic, you take out Nadal as a thought exercise. And, you know, none of those guys are going to play the U.S. Open. Who are the guys you would then think, you know, if you take out the big three, are capable of winning, you know, a Grand Slam like the U.S. Open two weeks on the hard court? 
I think Daniil Medvedev has worked his way firmly into that conversation. And I would say he's one of a group of maybe him, maybe team. I obviously love Zverev, um, but the, you know, Tsitsipas, those are the guys, Nishikori, the five guys that really popped out to me in terms of, I, you know, and again, it's ridiculous to say because you'd have to see the draw, you'd have to see all of these different things, but do you think it would be, I guess my question to you is, do you think it's fair to include Daniil Medvedev in that grouping, given what we've seen from him on hard courts in 2019? I think it's fair to put him in that category. I mean, gosh, look how many wins he's, you know, he's had just him in and 2019 Stefanos, season. Yeah, one yeah, and exactly. two the whole season. Um, and no, and I think that's fair. I think, you know, if you take those guys out of the conversation, you know, look look who's left in the draw usually until they hit one of those guys. So, you know, that's that's kind of how you formulate that list, and I think that's fair. I, I mean, personally, if you're talking to me, of course, I'm I'm throwing in a couple older players too, you know, whether it's Raonic or Vavrinka, someone Would like that. Would you throw – so uh, that's interesting. Well, Rinka, I get why – and you can make the case for – I feel like Nishikori you have to put in that group, given that yeah, he's, he's a been lock. in the U.S. Open final. Yeah. No, he's – I'm going to make the quarterfinals and lose to a top three seed every – year like that's what he does now at grand slams for i mean yeah he i mean yeah that's, that's definitely fair that those are results that he has um he has had at big tournaments so i think that's fair to say but like i don't know i think you can say that about a lot of guys until they run into the big three you that's, know it's yeah. just it's just a select it's truly it's just a select list of those guys who can perform well until they hit the big three and you know Nishikori obviously he got to that 2014 u.s open final lost to marin chilich um, you know, but the, there's, there's a few guys in those conversations, I think, in, especially when you're framing it in terms of some of the younger guys and you don't focus on you, you know, the niche core of whatever Medvedev certainly has got to be in that list. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In my culture, we would say Dianu. Um, and it's an interesting thought. Again, we're probably going to get a bunch of those guys, but only Rafa in Canada. It'll be interesting to see who emerges mm-hmm. to take that other final spot. I don't think Kevin Anderson's playing in Canada either, so it really is a wide-open draw. But again, uh, let's keep it moving here. Another yeah, tournament I think I he wanna... pulled out. I yeah, think he, Kevin Anderson pulled out. So there you go. Um, another reason why there's all of these slot. Uh, it's why I love the second half of the year because it's really survival mode. Which of these players are still fit enough to even make it? That's why the Karen Kashnovs of the world, the Daniil Medvedevs, the 6'6 guys who are still 22, 23 years old and just feels like they could run around forever. Those are the types of bots I love going into the U.S. Open. I also love a little Borna Chorich talka, but we can save that for a little bit later. I do want to talk about another result from this weekend. As I mentioned, when I came home last night, I got to see the ending of the first set of the Los Cabos final, where we had number two seed Diego Schwartzman taking on, I believe, number five seed Taylor Fritz. Good for you, Taylor Fritz. And of course, for Fritz in making this final, his third straight final at a non-Grand Slam event, he wins Eastbourne before Wimbledon makes the final in Atlanta last week, losing to Dimenauer. This week, he ends up falling just short against Diego Schwartzman, 7-6-6-3. I got a text from Jonathan Kelly this morning, and you mentioned something when we were talking about this before the podcast, so where I want to go. Do you think Fritz, I mean, third title and again, in three straight non-slam events, super impressive, but that he's played so many events uh, recently, is it fair to say he looked a little tired in last night's final? I think he did a little bit. I think, you know, some of it is the product of just, yeah, I know how much tennis he's played and how high-level tennis that has been. Um, I think a lot of it also is he looked a little tired to me 
mainly because of sort of the style of tennis that he was playing and the game that he was playing against Schwartzman. I mean, that's Schwartzman's game out there is you go out and you grind, um, you know, a lot of neutral rally balls, you know, you're hanging out in rallies for a long time. I mean, sheesh, even if you go and watch the highlights of this, how many of these points are just, you know, long drawn out points where Schwartzman's just wearing them down, wearing them down, wearing them down. And that's just not the sort of game that I was expecting or wanting Fritz to play if he's going to win this. Now, that being said, I mean, still a close match, six and three, right? You know, they, he definitely had his chances, no doubt about that. Um, and he has been in very, very good form, um, especially here in 2019. Like you said, those those title runs um, and those runner-up results have been great. It's just, it's one of those things where Schwartzman just looked fresh because he was playing on his terms. I think that was a big part of it. I, so I completely agree with you there. The match was played on Schwartzman's terms. For Taylor Fritz, Again, I, just the way he's able to serve himself out of troubles, the way sure. that when he plays his best tennis, it seems like the ball is always on his racket, uh, regardless of who he's playing. That's something that we will continue to be excited about. I tuned in, as I mentioned, for that first set tiebreaker. It's 3-4 Fritz is serving, makes a bad unforced error for 3-5, double faults for 3-6, and then Schwartzman gives him a double fault back. They play a long point, Fritz, again, because Schwartzman. I guess I was excited that Schwartzman really wasn't able to hurt Fritz that badly. Fritz was able to stay alive in points, although I suppose for Schwartzman, again, it's death by a thousand paper cuts, and that sort of strategy worked for him. Uh, but for Taylor Fritz, who's up to now a new career high, number 25 in the live rankings, obviously he is now the top-ranked American not named John Isner, uh, I guess, I don't want to say what do you see as his upside, you know, moving forward, but just what do you think of his floor right now as a player? Because even though it's been three finals and three non-slam events, they've all been 250s. Do you still, I just, as good as he's looked, I just feel like still physically, because he's incapable of getting side to, because he's just only so explosive, he's still going to be a little bit limited. But then, of course, you see the serve, the returns, the natural power. It's like, oh, maybe not. I just, I still, I still don't know what exactly to think of Taylor Fritz. How are you feeling about him? I mean, yeah, jury's still out. He's 21, right? So, I mean, there's still a lot of work to uh, be done, so to speak. I mean, but look, Makes another, like I said, makes another run to contend for a title. Takes out the one seed in this one, Fonini. I mean, he he's looked to be in very good form. And uh, the reason I would definitely hold off on all the judgment in terms of, you know, hey, where where is he going to be limited? What's it going to look like? Is because so far he's just he's trending upward and he's improving and he's only 21. And so it's really hard to sort of guess that sort of trajectory and uh, both physically and just from a tactical. Um, tennis standpoint it's hard to sort of map that out at the moment but I mean I guess the good signs for me overall more than anything else are like I said he's trending upward he's really really getting himself out of those bad situations with his serve he's doing phenomenal work with the serve plus one off a forehand wing I mean he's doing all the things right right now and so yeah you know his success is mainly coming at this 250 level and that's fine but hey I mean for the most part that's where that starts so it doesn't bother me that much to think about, and you know, I like I said, I hold off and reserve some judgment at least for the time being. I just think it's so fascinating. You look at the three young Americans who've really jumped, and I would say, 
a Tommy Paul who qualified for Montreal today. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk about that, but uh, if he's able to put a full season together healthy, I think you would throw him in this group of four. And it's funny because back in the day, it used to be the 96s and the 98s who were really the superstar of the young USTA crops. And now it's the 97 tr- uh, trio of Opelka, Fritz, and Paul that have really jumped. But of the, f- what we'll hold Tommy Paul out of this discussion for now, of Fritz, Opelka, Tiafo. It's just so fascinating because all of their games just a little bit different than the other guy for Opelka. You know, the physicality, the seven feet, just the way he's able to come at you with power. It's overwhelming. With Tiafo, it's the speed. It's the finesse. It's the way, again, he's just going to keep you so uncomfortable. And then with Fritz, it's your classic serve plus one American tennis. I guess... What have your thoughts been? Because, you know, for Tiafo, it's been the big results. Uh, for Opelka, it's winning the New York. It's Fritz making finals at the 250 level. What do you think of, you know, comparing the three of them at this stage of their progress? Would you say, and then we'll transition from this. I know this is a big topic. I would say it goes Fritz, Opelka, Tiafo. If I had to bet my life two out of three matches, who I would take. What do you think of that order? You're saying Tiafo wouldn't be either of them? I would take, yeah, him last. I just think the serving from Fritz and Opelka, I know what I'm going to get. I'm fine riding with them. I'm like, if you can break Riley Opelka, I deserve to die. You're just, you're just pushing this, uh, you're just pushing this classic American tennis agenda where there's nothing but the serve (laughs) and the forehand. No, I love Tiafo. I guess what I'm saying is I'm just shocked because Tiafo's had the big results, but you look week in, week out, Fritz and Opelka are the guys who seem to be doing a little bit better on that weekly grind. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely possible. And look, this, this, Tiafo, maybe he's not in his best stretch at the moment. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you watch him play. And to me, when I'm watching him, I still see all the potential in the world out of those three. Maybe not in a, you know, head-to-head matchup scenario because, like you said, matchups get weird. They know each other, things like that. But in terms of pure potential, especially when you just add the physicality that Tiafo brings to the court, I mean... I'm probably putting him as number one in terms of actual potential. Over Opelka? Opelka's seven feet and can actually move and, like, hit ground strokes. I just feel like how, like I've been on this train many a pods recently. Yeah, so. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm holding out. Maybe it's just because we haven't seen the the seven-footer take over the, the world in tennis sort of thing. But I don't know. If I don't know. I'm not seeing it. Yeah, that's fair. Look, I again— I'm seeing Tiafo over. I mean, I think you, you look at the guys who— are really able to just define our sport. You know, they're not seven feet tall, right? They're six one, they're six foot, they're six two, they're six three. I don't know. They're uh, not seven feet tall yet. We'll see. Yeah, but that, maybe that's the way we're trending. That's what I'm saying. Is maybe yeah. I'm thinking that way because we have not seen the seven footer take take over. The closest well, what we've I seen am, is Isner. You know, and that's American tennis. I agree. I think the the preponderance of six six players. You know, yeah. it's it's no, the passes that I mean, not that he's it's, just the Medvedevs, Kachanovs, her Kachanovs, catches of the of world. Of course. Yeah, of course. They, no, it's it's slowly. Uh, yeah, it's it's growing to say the least. Because yeah. um, <laughs> you look at it, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, even, even Sasha Kyrgios, Bublik. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, dude, look at Zverev. Zverev's big. Yeah, so I mean, go. yeah, they're all they're all big. So maybe that's just the way it is. Maybe maybe people like me um, just aren't <laughs> built to play the sport anymore. Maybe it's- I'm done. Counterpoint: Diego Schwartzman just won a title, so people like exactly. you. Yeah, he's holding it. All right, I'm I'm a fair bit taller than Diego Schwartzman, <laughs> so you can you can chill on that fake. Come on now. 
Uh, also, anyway, for, for that tall pun, by the way, I know it's not this podcast, but hey, great shot. I enjoyed oh, it. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, you like that? Yeah, yeah. me too. Okay. I always <laughs> appreciate it. Yeah, but with that being said, uh, again, one more tournament I want to talk about at the yeah. ATP 250 up level. That, of course, is in Austria. We had a 250 event on the clay. Dominic team goes to his home country, takes home the title, knocking out Albert Ramos Vanola 7-6-6-1 in the final. Uh, for Dominic team, not the toughest of draws, beats fellow countryman Sebastian Ofner in a rematch of, I believe, leave the Eddie Herr 2011 final. Um, then he knocks out Pablo Andahar, Lorenzo Sinego, and as I mentioned, Ramos Vinoles. So not a stack draw, but I'm sure for team, you know, he loses first round Wimbledon, loses early last week. He's happy to get back in the winner's circle. Uh, not a question about the tennis, but just a topic that I think has been coming up more and more. Your thoughts on them playing uh, clay events at the 250 level and up at this portion of the season, Jamie? I mean, I, I, to me, it's just more case-by-case, tournament-by-tournament. I mean, I think, you know, someone like Team, it doesn't really bother me that he goes and plays a, a clay court tournament on his home soil. That doesn't bother me. You know, he loves clay, and he wanted to win this tournament, you know, because he's from Austria, and it's in Austria. You know, that, that doesn't bother me at all. I think, yeah. overall, it, it is a little weird when you're sort of mixing seasons. But the thing is, you got to remember, with, with clay and hard courts, I mean— with those two, I mean, think about how many like clay court and hard court facilities there are in the world everywhere. It's, it's just ridiculous. And so it's like if, if you want if, – if that's the predominant surface in your area, are you like only allowed to hold a tournament in a certain window? Like to me, I don't really think that's fair. So it doesn't bother me that much, you know, especially with hard court and clay court because it's just – they're everywhere, right? And so that doesn't bother me quite as much and especially doesn't bother me in a situation like this where team plays this tournament, wins it, you know. There you go. I'm down with that measured take. I, I've added on before. It, it doesn't really matter to me. If your no. community can put on a tournament, go for it. Yeah, like, I, exactly. I agree with you. I'm down. And you can get, and if you can get, you know, big names to play it, even though it might not be in the, you know, technical season in terms of what everyone else is doing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this has got to be a huge win for this tournament, right? They got team coming in. Yeah, I'm sure they did. For them, it's best case scenario, right? Because yeah. not only did team play, but he won it. He won He's it, there every course. match. Yeah, so yeah, you know what? I'm totally down with that answer. We can move on to our next topic. And I asked you to watch this match specifically in preparation for this uh, podcast. I, as I mentioned earlier, I come home last night. Hyun Chung coming back from injury at the Chengdu uh, qualif- uh, qualifier, Chengdu Challenger event, uh, making his way to the final with wins over. Uh, Seeded players D Wu uh, against G Nam against uh, who who else? Sorry, against Tatsuma Ito. Sorry, and then in the final he knocks out Yugi Sagita. Uh, so by no means you know a fluke of a draw. He's ha- he's playing the seeded player that he's supposed to play in each and every spot. And look, he he you know multiple times this week goes three sets in the quarterfinals, goes three sets in the round of sixteen. But he rebounded and, in my opinion, got better and better on the way to winning that title against Sagita six four six three yesterday. And I'm sorry for going on a rant here, Jamie. I watch a ton of challenger tennis to make that clear. You know, it's probably in the power rankings. Mike Cation watches the most. Then it's that guy, Paul T. Tennis or whatever. On I don't know his last name. I'm sorry, but Paul watches probably the second most. And then I like to think I'm up there in that group. And just watching this match, you see Hyun Chung, who obviously last season starts the year on a roll, makes the semifinals of the Australian Open, knocking out Djokovic, makes a bunch of quarterfinals at, at the hardcourt of 
events at the Indian Wells and Miami stretch. I think he made two quarterfinals there. And then he sort of disappeared for six months. We didn't really see anything from him. Didn't We know he had that foot blister, but it seemed like a bunch of other injuries added up. That being said, Jamie, you watched this guy on the challenger court, and we, we mentioned this. You're just like, oh my God, he's doing this sport differently than everyone else. This guy is the real deal. And it just, I guess, is it fair to say watching him this weekend, you were reminded of just why he was able to make that Australian Open semifinal? Definitely. I mean, look, you're looking at a guy who uh, slightly over a year ago was top 20. Um, And so you come back, of course, when anyone comes back from an injury and whatnot, it's a different story. But look, you expect him to win this. Um, And he had some tight matches in this. It's not like he came through and just blew everyone out of the water. You know, he had two, three setters in this. You know, once it got toward the end, the business end of this tournament in particular, he looked pretty solid, you know, comes out four and three in the final. Um, But yeah, I mean, I was just reminded. I was like, oh, right. And it's funny because I forgot about this dude. Like, this is not a name that I've thought about in the, in the world of tennis for a long time. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this guy, he's good. And so, um, you know, it's nice to see what he's like 23. So it's, it's going to be awesome to see another a different young guy thrown into that mix. Once again, somebody who can absolutely contend even in the biggest of tournaments, like you just mentioned, um, of course, made that great semi run at the Aussie Open that we all remember. Uh, what was it? 2018, right? And yeah. so... It's good to see him back, and it's just even funnier just to see his name back again. I was like, oh, crap, yeah, this guy, he's good. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, that backhand, yeah, that's pretty solid. The ba- um, I'm so <laughs> happy you said it. So just quick tangent on that. So I, you know, the Twitter account, Double Fault, I messaged him as I was watching. I was like, hey, uh, the semifinal match, Chung hits the sliding backhand down the line winner uh, on match point. I'm like, can you can you gift this out, please? He goes, yeah, of course. And, yeah, you just see the movement, the power on the backhand. When he steps up and down goes down the line you never want to compare someone to Djokovic but when you're watching it on a challenger live stream you're like oh my god you know this looks unfucking believable like what right. this guy is doing here right. it's crazy right. and so that's why to me to see him back you mentioned that Australian Open this is the guy he won the next gen finals in 2017 exactly. as well like the results the pedigree is there it's just a matter of can he get his confidence back from injury and winning a challenger event when you have been top 20 and played in the semifinals of a slam does doesn't seem huge, but to do it first event back, that to me bodes very well. And here's a guy who I think he's like 150 right now in the live rankings, but if he can get himself in a position to get into that U.S. Open main draw, there is no reason why he can't win two, three matches if the draw breaks right for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this dude is dangerous, you know, especially anything on a hard court. I mean, you, you saw it this weekend. Granted, maybe it's not the same you know, level of competition is something you're going to see, you know, in these bigger, um, you know, high level tournaments, but nonetheless, the point remains. I mean, this guy's done it before he's beaten big names. He can do it again. And, you know, like I said, I'm just going to harp in on, um, the hardcore. I mean, he just looks so, so comfortable on it. Um, and so I, I'm really excited to see what, what's in store, at least you for can, this, this you season. Can, you can also see though, why his foot would explode with a blister because yeah, he literally I mean, slides into everything. Yeah, no, there's uh, there's definitely a fair amount of friction that he's putting in. (laughs) The blisters definitely are explained. Hopefully he gets that worked out because that was wild. You remember the picture of it that went like pretty viral? That was disgusting. I was like, good God, man. But fair amount of friction might be the title for this episode. I like that a lot. Um, I mean, yeah, hey. Great shot. Well, great shot to me, actually. I said it. Yeah, you're two for two this podcast. Uh, But all right, my last topic for you, we're a little over 30 minutes, but we'll round out here. Uh, (laughs) uh, I've mentioned before that uh, 
this we wanted to bring it up Jensen Brooksby the I think last year he won Kalamazoo or maybe he was a finalist uh now has been playing a bunch of pro tour events before he's supposed to go off to Baylor this January this weekend in Decatur Illinois he takes home another futures title knocking off you know former college all-americans and from last season like Alfredo Perez Axel Geller Hattie Habib of Texas A&M uh, to win the title you look in the live rankings now Brooksby up to I believe in the 400s number 487 given that he's got a full you know summer hardcore season to play he's going to get wild cards because of his success I believe Colette Lewis reported he already has a U.S. Open qualifying wild card guaranteed Uh, my question to you is given that he's committed to Baylor and still simultaneously having this sort of pro success is there a certain line that he could meet in your mind, Jamie, where it's, you know, it wouldn't make sense for him to go on to college? Like for me, if he makes that main draw of the U.S. Open, given the prize money you get from the first round and the position he'll be putting himself in to make a jump in the rankings, I don't know why you go to college at that point. Take well, that hey, prize he's money. Already, he's already been in the main draw of the U.S. Open. Yeah, but he definitely went that prize money because he's committed to Baylor. Right. So it's like but, no, but I'm saying, but I'm saying you could do, he could do the exact same thing. Like he got... Yeah. He got the wild card into the main draw because he did win Kalamazoo last year. So like, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's where I put the reasoning because he's been in that main draw again. Maybe maybe it's just because it's a different way of earning it because it's not through Kalamazoo, right? I guess that's fair. But it's also a money yeah. thing. It's literally it is like, a money thing. It's it is like a money thing. If you get uh, what is the first round paying out this year? Like forty thousand, something like yeah. that. Yeah, you, take it. Yeah. No, I mean I think that's fair. I I, I think that's a fair. I agree with you. It's just. I mean, yeah, it's tough to look at, you know, 40K and be like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want it. But the thing is, is, yeah, is it worth foregoing where you're going to go? Baylor, you know, we've talked about this so many times as college, as the breeding ground. It's like, but, hey, if you don't need it, you know, maybe you don't need it, right? Is At that point, does it become a waste? I don't know. Um, I think, it, obviously, it's just a decision, you know, he's, he's going to have to make. But, you know, of course, if he's in that U.S. Open, if he, you know, does anything that makes some noise, it's got to be a conversation topic, and it's got to be something in his own head for sure. Uh, everyone knows Coach Brian Bolin of the Baylor Bears is my oh, yeah. guy. That's my guy. And I have sent him texts. No, I have sent him texts saying, Coach, all I'm saying is Jensen looks really, really good. And uh, I you know. I'm too not, good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that, that's all I'm saying is uh, just Coach Bolin, you've worked your charm on so many. Just keep, you know, got to keep sending him texts. Make him happy. Um, but all right, with that being said, Rogers Cup this week. Any final thoughts on that before we wrap up? That's a great one. All I'm going to say is just sorry to Dimitrov and Vavrinka for having to meet <laughs> in another first round of a tournament. It's getting ridiculous. Someone's got to Someone's got to stop that. No, it's unbelievable. It's like, you know, you're going to get Duke Lehigh every year. You're going to mm. get some sort of matchup like that in the NCAA tournament. For these guys, it just sucks because in their ba- – I, I, the counter to that is don't they deserve to play each other at this point in their career? Like there are guys who deserve to be seated. The rankings don't lie. I don't think they deserve to play each other first round. I think they're both better than that. Um, well, Because you think Wawrinka should be like the number eight seed. Well, I feel wor- – let me put it this way. I feel worse for – not worse. That's weird. Mm, I don't know what word I want to go with. I feel like Vavrinka deserves more of a ranking at this point than Dimitrov. Let me say that. I know Dimitrov has struggled with a lot in terms of shoulder and then just mentally his, you've seen his serve. It's just, I, I don't know what's up with that. Hopefully yeah. he's, he's gotten out of that slump. But, you know, Vavrinka, if, even if you take outside of the proven track record, I mean, he's looked, he's honestly looked fairly good in the last few months. You know, he's come back from his injury. 
Um, and it's tough. And I think, I mean, he's had the upper hand against Dimitrov in these, at least the recent matchups, I believe. So um, it is what it is. Of course, they see the draw and they're like, damn it again. Come on. But um, here's the deal. I expect Bobrenko to win it. And I think he expects to win this one as well. I feel worse for Dimitrov because he's like, dude, are you kidding me? Like he's trying to get back and, you know, get more just squared away mentally. And he's like, oh, I'm playing Stan Bobrenko again. You know, it's like these, these, some of these guys who are capable of doing anything who show up in tournaments unseated, you know, take a Kyrgios, for example. It's like just absolute drawbreakers, you know. No, I completely agree with you. I also think the ATP should pass a rule that unless your opponent is Roger Federer, we should only be allowed one one-handed backhand per ATP match. The other is got to have at least one one-hander, one two-hander. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm there on that take yet. But maybe maybe talk to me later. After, it's very. Uh, it's a very I'll come pro- around. It's a very progressive take. Um, Fair. But yeah, all right. With that being said, last last scenario: FAA Shapovalov Raonic. Who goes the furthest in, uh, at home? Oh God, you you're really testing the uh, you're testing how much I've looked at this draw. So I would I would say without looking at the actually I don't even know who's do you know do you know the first rounds I know I think Ronich. they might end I up know, playing I know each Ronich, other. I know Ronich plays Puy because Kevin Anderson pulled out. I know yeah. that one, and I know Shapovalov plays Air Bear. Who do you know who FAA plays first round? FAA is probably seated. Oh, he plays a Canadian. That's hilarious. Yeah, he plays Pulaski. Pospisil. Right? Oh, Pospisil. No, he, That's yeah, he is. plays Pospisil. Damn, there's a lot of Canadians. In Do you know Pospisil switched to a one-handed backhand? No, he didn't. Are you I serious? swear to I watched him on the Challenger feed versus Ernesto in Granby last week, and I texted Roth, and I go, dude, you're not going to believe who has a one-handed backhand. No now. way. Dude, That's it's, wild. it's hilarious, too. It's like, are you, are we are we sure? We're, I think, though, it's from injury, but I'm like, are we, are we really doing the The duo of him and Jack Sock, you could do a 30 for 30 documentary on since the fall, you know, since they won their Wimbledon title. Yeah, no, you, yeah, you probably could. I mean, it was sweet. It was a sweet title. I was excited about that. Anyway, get back to your question. I mean, I'm not looking at the draw at all here, but I'd probably say FAA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, maybe. I that, ah, God, I, mm, that's the smart always, money. That's the smart money. Is it though? Is that smarter money than yeah. Ronich? Who's been Who's been more relevant this season? Who's played more? Yeah, who's but dude, it's been... Ronich, hard court. He's yeah, seated in this. He can serve his way out of literally anything. He has a tougher first round matchup. He has Puy first round, but yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. Okay. I'm saying Ronich or FAA. All right, uh, so you're taking two of the three possible answers. That's a good All right, bet. fine. I'll take FAA. All right. You know, I'll, I, don't need, I'll, I don't need that from you. I'll take Chapo. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'll take uh, I'll take FAA as well. I just think that's the Great. obvious pick. But, yeah, with that in mind, again, busy week of tennis ahead of us. If you need to stay up on the action, you've missed anything and want to catch up, be sure to check out our website, CrackRackets.com. Our team continuing to put up as much content as possible to keep you guys all in the thick of things of the tennis world. You know the deal by now, uh, social media-wise. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Like, rate, subscribe, review. Uh, follow us there. Check out our other podcasts, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast. So many great guests there recently. Matt Zemek, Luke Jensen, uh, just Tim Blinkai, and uh, just throughout the day. So many fun guests we know you guys will enjoy. As always, a huge shout out to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a f***ing editing job to do as always, and you know are so willing to put up with all of my nonsense, so always appreciate them. But Jamie, any final thoughts before we wrap? No, sir. Got it all out of me here. Yeah, look, 42 minutes is a lot for you. That's a marathon. Well, saying that it's the mini break, you're you're damn right it is. <laughs> yeah, look, I hope your girlfriend doesn't uh, isn't treated to the same way. 
uh, you know, really? Was, That's where we're going? Okay. Yeah. What a <laughs> what a closer! Saying. It might as well just you know, <laughs> stop rolling here. It's well done. Leave it all in, West Off. You're right. That was a bad joke. But for my wonderful co-host and, again, host of the Wednesday Mini Break Podcast episode, James Foster McDonald, the dark horse candidate to be the USC men's tennis Trojans coach come 2020, for our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, and for our entire team at Correct Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell our listeners? That's a break. And we will see you all later this week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.